Welcome to the podcast version of Sunday Miscellany, which differs from the radio version for rights reasons. We hope you enjoy the program. It rises even at this still murky time of year, out of the mist and fog and gloom. It rises on the other side of the river, miles and fields away. It rises into the clear sky and the darkened sky. It is there when I sit at my desk in the morning. It is there when I leave the work of the day behind. The mountain is a constant on the landscape, its sides catching the sweep of the wind, the shadows of the passing cloud running over its back, the sun glinting on its coats of snow and stone and heather. Just after the Christmas of 2020, as the new year was about to shoulder its way into the world, my constant companion and I climbed the mountain, as we've done every summer and every winter since we moved to South Carlo ten years ago. We brought a picnic, and we sat on a windswept rock and talked about the hopes and wishes and aspirations we had for the year ahead. What the year brought was, as years are wont to do, a mixture of the good, the not-so-good and the bearable. But what it brought too, at the height of last summer, was a Friday afternoon phone call telling me the clock was ticking but not very steadily. Within a week I was in hospital preparing for open-heart surgery. In those ironically dark midsummer days, I thought about a lot of things. Mortality, the past, the present, the mistakes, the things I wished I had and hadn't said to people over the years, the cul-de-sacs I'd gone down and the open roads I'd never taken. Most of my thoughts were negative and a dark stranger seemed to loiter on every stairs I climbed. But I survived the surgery and as the days darkened and autumn blew into winter, my spirits rose, and Christmas and the new year became beacons of light and optimism and anticipation. I realised I'm one of the lucky ones. And I realised too that I've been blessed in my life with two GPs whose care has spanned almost 50 years of living. The first is a man called John MacDougald. He became my go-to for the minor ailments of my 20s. He was the man who stood in the kitchen at three o'clock in the morning getting the children through croup. The man who sat with me when silence was needed and talked when words were acquired. The man who walked with me through the dark days before and after my brother's death. He was the true family doctor. His approach was holistic and his care and friendship and support were and are though he has now retired from practice, above and beyond what might rightly be expected of one man. The second is a woman called Helen Delaney, and without her astute observation, I might not have been here to write these words. The warmth of her personality, coupled with her medical skill, ensured that something that might otherwise have gone unnoticed was spotted and dealt with. At different times and in different ways, these two medics have saved my life. 
So this spring, as we climb the mountain and try to find a sheltered spot in which to hunker down and share our coffee, we will raise a cup to those two people and think of them with gratitude and a deep appreciation. And I will look to the brighter days ahead. My hope for the year is that they, that we, that all of us, find peace, good health and joy after the bleak, hard times we've all been through. The mountain is there to climb. It casts its shadow. It shelters the valley. It hides the sun and then reveals it. It lifts its head to the light of the stars and towers above the jigsaw of fields below. The mountain offers darkness and light, challenge and recompense, indecision and optimism. But who would not want to go on climbing? Who would not want to stand on the summit and watch the sun set and the moon rise? Who would not want to remember the friends who save our lives in a multitude of ways? We just went into the second-hand shop to browse, with no intention of buying, but a horseshoe buckle on a brown leather belt caught your eye. You picked it up to hold it, guessing at its authenticity. You spent ten minutes bartering, spinning a yarn about your grandfather owning a similar belt, long since lost down the road. The owner was intrigued. The starting price was €60. I was listening in, taking note, giggling with embarrassment, hoping your shenanigans wouldn't get us thrown out of the shop, half wanting the owner not to give in to your nonsense. If the haggling ended badly, my plan was to buy the belt as a surprise for your birthday. The grin on your face, not giving in, a tenner lower and then a fiver. The haggling was now a 30 euro, half its original. The background music was jazz. The conversation between you and the owner moved down to sulky horse racing, tinsmitten and general men's chat. Both of you laughing, correcting and explaining. Hearing sporadic names of our people and counties being mentioned, you were in your element. I meandered around the shop in my chair, bumping into mannequins, feeling happy, almost smug, knowing your eyes were furtively on me. I foraged through the magpie's nest of trinkets in the corner of the shop. Bracelets, earrings, brooches. I held them, felt their weight, fidgeted with the clasps, secretly wanting to bite into one. Kitsch, loud and gaudy. I moved on, past beautiful box handbags and display, skirts and tops. Then, hidden in the corner, plain and simple, the ultimate classic dress. It seemed timeless. You saw me hold the dress up against my body, move towards the mirror, testing different angles, stretching the fabric across my hips. Green cashmere, subtle and discreet. You took note. 
the low cut back echoing that horseshoe shape. The emblem, the symbol that we both love. It hung on my shoulders and for a moment I felt beautiful. But I knew my bartering skills were nowhere near as good as yours. I found the price tag and put the dress back on the hanger. It was beyond my budget. A burst of laughter behind me. Your deal was done. The belt was in the bag. There was a handshake. I watched you tap your card at the till. A week later, the dress was next to my pillow. Vintage, you said, insisting it was top style. The morning of your brother's wedding, twirling and modelling in it, I realised the lent was wrong. My panic was rising. Then you loosened that brown belt from your waist. Wrapping it around my waist, you hitched the dress above my knees. We laughed and danced at the wedding. You boldly whispered things in my ear, tracing your finger on my bare back. Then came the second lockdown. Early in the romance, we'd agreed a conventional relationship was not for us. We were too old, too well-practiced to live together, we'd decided. We were also the vulnerable. We were the high risk. We were those words. But mostly, we were the scared. Our impairments meant we were immunosuppressed. We needed to separate, keep a distance. We couldn't have physical contact. We made efforts on Zoom, but somewhere along the way, the intensity lessened. Ordering a takeaway for one held no excitement. No pulling faces at each other's bad choices, picking at each other's food, eating the leftovers together for breakfast. The internet offered private glimpses, but somehow without intimacy. Occasionally, you'd lift the laptop to another room, given a new view. I'd see your jeans and my favourite T-shirt strewn on the floor. I'd see tissues on your desk and wonder was your sneeze a cold or something worse. The record player, my last gift, chosen online and delivered by a stranger in gloves and a mask. Our lives felt sanitised and empty. The days, the weeks, the months vanishing away. Listless, I'd sustain myself by remembering. I took to opening the cap of your aftershave, rosewood and amber, and inhaling. The first time we held hands, our fingers plaited together. You took delight in my aubergine fingernails. Now, on Zoom, my nails were bare. I'd stop bothering to paint them. You know it was the first time. You said you loved my nail polish. When we went back into the world, we were both nervous. My jewel green dress was out of shape from too many washes. I wore it anyway. Waiting for me at the agreed meeting point, you were wearing the belt with the horseshoe buckle, now pulled to the third notch. We gazed at each other. We cried. We moved closer. We blocked the entrance to the shop. Finally, we kissed.
You're only an old farmer, Whelan. Billy Bumberger shouted to me across the schoolyard. In 1977, being called a farmer was the biggest insult you could make to any 14-year-old Clombell Towney. I'm no farmer, I said, as if I'd been caught with a sheep up my jumper. But Billy wasn't wrong. I had farmer's blood in me, but I kept it very much to myself. My parents came from Harney's Cross, four miles up Tickencar Hill at the foot of the Cumras. They came from neighbouring farms and from around the age of five I spent all my school holidays between both farms. Under the watchful eye of my grandfather I became a part-time shepherd. I checked for lambs on wet spring mornings, ire burning my calves as wellingtons and short pants were a bad mix. In the summer I rattled sheep during shearings or stood in gaps when required. I held lambs for my grandfather while he cut their tails with a kitchen knife and thought nothing of it when Nanny would use the same knife to cut bread for our tea, giving it just a casual wipe on our housecoat. I worked on boat farms, but I was more drawn to my father's home place, where his brother Davy kept sheep, horses and cows. He was the coolest man I ever knew. He was rough and gentle in equal measure. He wore a wide-brimmed hat like a real cowboy. When I was with him, I imagined I was a cowboy too. I had the whole Sioux nation of nettles and thistles to fight, and I chopped and slayed enemies for days. When I went to bed, a candle lit the way. Dark shadows and burning candle grease mixed fear and pleasure. Then one day everything changed. I was 14 and after a long summer stay, I arranged to go back into Clamel for the weekend. I met my friends, Hog and Mucky. While I had been busy fighting thistles and nettles and cutting lambs' tails, Hog and Mucky had been chasing girls and cultivating flowers of their own. One such beauty was Sheila. She had shiny hair and deep red lips, and I wondered how I might impress her. I decided to hit her with my best shot. I recounted one after another all of my Uncle Davy's best risque jokes. I even told the one about the two nuns on the bicycle. She looked shocked, but I could tell she enjoyed them, and more importantly, she was listening to me. I was in love. The farm was a world away. But as quick as it began, my weekend was over. I found myself back up the hill again, all the things I had loved about the place now irritated me. I cursed the backwardness of the place, the lack of electricity and dimness of flickering candles. I cursed the hot wax that burned on my hands. I thought of all the lads in Clamel having fun with all the girls, but mostly I thought of Sheila and the way she laughed at my yarns. I couldn't wait to get back into town. As it turned out, I didn't have too long to wait. The next day I was helping Davy to dose sheep, but my head was back in town. I left the pen gate open. Davy shouted at me for letting sheep get loose and I cursed at him. I'd never sworn at an adult before and immediately I regretted it. But Davy just laughed. This made everything worse. I stormed off before he saw me crying. When the dust settled, I demanded to be brought home. Unfortunately, the only lift was with Davy. The trip to town was quiet. Davy hardly spoke. I thought about Sheila's black hair and wondered what this mountainy bachelor knew of love. I didn't know it then, but it would be years before I'd be back in Harney's Cross. I hung around the lads for the rest of the holidays. I did eventually pluck up the courage to ask Sheila out. I even stole a kiss from those dark red lips. But as the summer ended, so did the romance. I didn't have much to follow up Davy's jokes, and she found someone else to make her laugh. Time passed and I grew up. Harney's Cross changed too. Sadly, my grandparents passed away, but my uncle, Davy, true to his cowboy roots, stayed the same, wide-brim hat and all. I used to call to him occasionally and help him with the sheep. He was getting older, 
but could still tell a great yarn. Then one day, with the jobs done, we were sitting by the fire. He looked at me. Would you take over this place when I'm gone? He asked. Well, that's where I am now. I'm back up the hill with my own family, along with 200 yos and a sheepdog. I wear long pants now, so no air on the back of my legs. From time to time, I think of the old schoolyard in Clonmel and Billy Bumbugger's jibe. And I think, yeah, Billy, you were right. I am an old farmer. When I asked the assistant in the pharmacy for Silcox base, she looked at me with quizzical confusion. The explanation that it's a traditional skincare product on the market since 1934 brought no illuminating spark. Her white-coated colleague, a woman of my own vintage, had no such problem. Great for the skin, she enthused, handing over a small churn of the cream, still made by the gardener's family apothecary in Dundalk. I'm making this purchase on the advice of none other than Daniel O'Donnell, I ventured, as I handed over a modest sum. I was referring to a recent newspaper article I'd read to mark his 60th birthday, in which the smooth-faced Donegal crooner, fresh-skinned as a tachine, freely divulged his secret. A lather of soap never touches his face. He relies on Silcox base to deliver him from laughter lines and frown lines. Crow's feet and the cheek wrinkles called accordion pleats are massaged away with this no-nonsense unction. My acquaintance with Silcox base, however, goes back many decades before Daniel let me in on his skincare routine. My London aunt swore by it too. Home once a year from their lives of tough grind, they introduced me to all sorts of products and practices. At night I watched as they clamped their hair in merciless curling pins, metal teeth riveting their tresses in a serrated grip, a grip they'd release in the morning before brushing out their hair in waves and quiffs to rival Marilyn Monroe. Their Marcel hairdos, corrugated and rippling, were enhanced by many other routines. The colouring with henna was the biggest operation as they mixed the green powder into a cowpad with black tea. This was lathered onto the hair in a steaming mass. The auburn colour baked under a tinfoil helmet. The ants also swore by the properties of rice water to embellish the hair with bounce and shine. We ate lots of boiled rice when they came home, saving the cloudy water in jugs for their eager dipping of combs. They regarded butter as a rich conditioner too. No Berber tribeswoman massaged argan oil into her tresses as delicately as the ants applied a smidgen of butter to their crowning glory. It was lovely to be downwind of the mirror as they applied loose coaty powder. 
the perfumed drift of which spelt romance and allurement. In the same way, their fire engine lipstick blared sirens of glamour into the kitchen as they shaped the Cupid's bow with care and smacked the lips with a popping sound to spread the colour. High arched eyebrows were darkened with a pencil, moistened with a quick spit. Vintage rouge blushed the cheeks to a pink glow. Though the story is told that my Aunt Kit, on finding the little pot of rouge caked dry, improvised by sucking an aniseed ball until it emitted a red stickiness, a solution she then kneaded onto her cheeks. Dolled up in their polka-dotted dresses with cinched waists and swinging skirts, the ants were my version of Hollywood. Later, I would learn how their holiday routines with curling pins and makeup were a far cry from the lives of hardship they lived for the other 50 weeks of the year. I would visit them in their council flats on school holidays, help them struggle with shopping bags when the lift was broken in their high rise. I'd watch them trudge and heave. I'd see Kit, the one reputed to have rouged her cheeks with aniseed balls, remove the hat pins from her beret and uncoil strings of sausages from around her head when she came in from work in the kitchen of some posh hotel. This was the ingenious method she had devised to outwit the observant chef as she pilfered a few dogs, as she called the sausages, for our tea. We wired into those bangers with gusto. The knowledge of how they were procured made them even more delicious. What inspired the ants to pursue their beauty routines? Just as I was inspired towards the pharmacy by Daniel O'Donnell's advice, they were probably following instruction. I can just imagine how the lyrics of Al Dubin's number, Keep Young and Beautiful, lodged in their minds. What girl in 1950s London didn't imbibe the dictum that it's your duty to be beautiful? and believe that the fulfilment of that duty might well bring love. I don't know if the romantic version of love ever came the way of these fearless women, women who remained single, but were they loved and cherished? They were, most certainly. Well, it's happened. Mirror, mirror on the wall. I've become a man, da, after all. I should be on my annual pilgrimage to St. Valentine in White Fire Street to thank that patron saint of love for hearing the pleas of me ma and da and sending me a fella who thinks the sun, moon and stars shine out of me eyes. No, instead... Tomorrow I'll be on me hands and knees, lighting candles before the red-robed statue and praying our 16 and 17-year-old sons find love in their lives. This is Valentine's Day for middle-aged parents.
and in my family, it's like some intergenerational need to prevent romantic trauma. It all started with me Nanny Hegarty. Born, bred and died a proud Liberties woman, she used to duck into Whitefriars Street Chapel on her way to work as a cleaner. She'd light a candle and say prayers to St Valentine. She prayed for the love of her life, me granda Hegarty, who died of TB at 46. She prayed that no one would rat her out to the cruelty man and she, a widowed mother of four, out working all hours. But mostly, she prayed for her four kids. Prayed they'd always have enough food in their bellies. Prayed they'd get more education than she and her husband did. And prayed that her four kids would all find true love. Because me nanny Hegarty knew from experience. If you have love, a person who loves the bones of you no matter what, you can handle most of life's troubles with a bit more ease. Her prayers must have worked. Her four children all found love and gave Nanny Hegarty 29 grandchildren and many, many great and great, great grandchildren. I never met me Nanny Hegarty. She died on Valentine's Day 1965. Me ma said it was the first time she ever saw Dad cry. After the undertaker took away me Nanny's body, Dad said he could do nothing but go and light a candle before St. Valentine. Da thanked the saint for sending him a mother who believed love could overcome many of life's problems and offer solace even during the most woeful of times. Before Da left the church, he met an old neighbour from the flats. She'd heard the sad news, hugged me Da and offered her condolences. She nodded over to St. Valentine and remarked on me nanny's great devotion to the patron saint of love. The old neighbour said it was good luck to die on a saint's feast day and the family would be well taken care of now. I've no way of proving this to be true. But just to be on the safe side, I'm going to follow in the family footsteps and make it me business to get into Wildfire Street Church tomorrow. I'm going to light me candles and say me prayers. I'll offer prayers of thanks for me Nanny Hegarty, her great devotion to St Valentine and her fate in love. I'll say a prayer of joy for me ma and da, who are finally reunited and hopefully having a very romantic first Valentine's in heaven. I'll give St Valentine a wink and a nod to his workmate, St Jude, the patron saint of hopeless cases and thank them for sending me a darling husband who thinks the sun, moon and stars shine out of my eyes. But mostly, I'll whisper a prayer of hope and gratitude. I'll thank St Valentine for the love that carried us through these woeful Covid times. I plead with Valentine to watch over our 16 and 17-year-old sons and let them find love. Teenagers are out of quarantine. Restrictions have been lifted. And it's spring. Light and love have returned. Teenagers are back kissing teenagers. Close contact is right. Oh dear St. Valentine, pray for us. 
A while ago, I spotted a familiar face in a hotel lobby. Someone greatly admired in this country and in her home city, where they made her an honorary free woman earlier this month. I didn't go up to her, but I did salute her. And afterwards, I wrote this poem for her. For Vicky. I was there in an ordinary hotel lobby in Limerick City. The decor, sterile, beige. Two women checked in at reception. A teenage girl carried a tray of dirty dishes. A toddler tried to break loose from her mother's hand. A uniform hotel space, no different from any other. And then I saw her, seated on her own, laptop open on a coffee table, reading from the screen as she talked on her mobile phone. I stopped, as in the presence of pure royalty. And I curtsied to Vicky, to the questions she posed, the answers she insisted on, how she knocked away the medical brush-offs, how she refused to be silenced, to the steel of her stare, her superwoman's courage. I curtsied in honour of the women she has helped, the women whose lives she has saved, and the women who have died. I curtsied. It was the least I could do. I curtsied in a beige hotel lobby, and Vicky nodded back at me and smiled. On this morning's Sunday miscellany, we heard Into the Light by John McKenna. And then Valentine by Rosaline McDonough, read by Kathleen Murphy. That was followed by Towny Farmer by Joe Whelan. Then Keep Young and Beautiful by Margaret Galvin. Then we had St. Valentine, Close Contact is Right by Rachel Hegarty. And finally, For Vicky, a poem by Denise Blake. This morning's music was Carolyn Shivyogshi Moore, played by Steve Cooney on guitar. Then Haunted by the Pogues featuring Kocha Reardon on vocals. Then we heard The Chieftains featuring the Punch Brothers with The Frost is All Over. And then Keep Young and Beautiful, sung by Arlene Jackson with Meyer Davis and his orchestra. And our final piece was Here Comes the Sun by the Beatles. Sunday Miscellany's broadcast coordinator is Michelle Gibson and the producer is Sarah Binchy. For more from this and other RTE arts and culture programmes, see rte.ie forward slash culture. And to listen back to this morning's programme, go to rte.ie forward slash radio one forward slash Sunday Miscellany. You've been listening to the Sunday Miscellany podcast. For more from us, you can follow the programme on Facebook, Twitter, Spotify or Apple podcasts. Just search for RTE Sunday Miscellany.